The following is a midnight entertainment presentation. It's time for 30 minutes of sci-fi, 30 minutes of fantasy, 30 minutes of pop culture, movies, and television. It's time for 30 minutes of geek. This week, we begin our celebration of Batman's 75th anniversary by looking at the character's origins and what has made his legend endure for so long. Artist and Batman expert Steve Newton joins us to examine Batman in the comics. And now, he is vengeance, he is the knight. Here's your host for 30 Minutes of Geek. Here is Jimmy Elton. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the show that is more fun than Rorschach Test Day at Arkham Asylum. It's 30 Minutes of Geek, and I'm your host, Jim Yelton. This week, we have the first part of an ongoing celebration that we're going to have from now until the end of the year, celebrating my favorite superhero character. 2014, of course, is the 75th anniversary of Batman's first appearance in Detective Comics back in 1939. And because of that 75-year history of Batman, it's really hard to condense that down into a discussion. I mean, when you talk about Batman, are you going to talk about just the comics? Are you going to talk about the impact that he had on the various TV series? that they've used Batman in. The movies have been some of the biggest movies of all time. So when we were planning what we were going to do to celebrate Batman's anniversary, we decided to break it down into chunks. And every month from now until the end of the year, we're going to examine an aspect. And when we're talking Batman here on the show, there's really only one person that we can talk to. That is artist and the biggest Batman fan that I know, good friend Steve Newton. Actually, a couple of months ago, we had probably an all-night conversation about Batman. We talked to comics, we talked to movies, we talked to TV. Sit back and relax because Steve and I this week and next week in part two are going to look at Batman in the comics. And we started off the conversation talking about the state of the comic book industry in the 30s and what led to Batman. Does it amaze you to be sitting here in 2014 and know that he ha- has been around for 75 years? I think if you step back away, it, it is kind of amazing. But when I think about my experiences growing up, I, I, it never occurred to me that this character had been around for so long. It, it just seemed like a natural. Yeah, and, you know? and that was the thing I thought, too, was that because he had been around in various forms, Batman was, like, one of the first characters that I can think of that was, like, the multimedia sort of a character. Oh, sure. From a comic standpoint, very groundbreaking character. Oh, definitely. Uh, it, there's really no genre of story that you can't tell with Batman. You, you, you can use him in any scenario. Um, and I think it, over the years, like, that's one of the really cool things to me about Batman. Yeah. I mean, you can argue about which character is the best character, and everybody's going to have a good argument. I mean, Superman fans have a good argument for why Superman's the best character. Spider-Man fans have a good argument about why Spider-Man's the best character. Right. But I don't think either one of those characters you can put into different settings or different types of stories, no. and they work. Like Batman does. I mean, Batman... Even time periods. Right, exactly. Yeah, well, and and a lot of it has to do with the fact... I don't really consider Batman a super... I mean, technically, yes, he is. But he he is and he isn't. you got the detective side. you got the athlete-slash-martial-artist side. you got... He can be romantic, even. you got the science... Almost 
science fiction uh, side to it. And then you got the gothic horror. I can't really think of any other comic book character that you can fit so seamlessly into those different genre stories than Batman. I mean, it's you can to a certain extent with just almost everybody else, but it's it doesn't work as well. I remember the, when Marvel did that sixteen oh two. That right. that was a, yeah. that was a good series, and it worked. But the fact that you had Peter Parquar, that right. how, how are you going to make him Spider Man? They had to do it with witchcraft. You didn't even really see it a whole. I mean, him as a character in that in that story. But Batman can be Batman in any time, in any period, time period, in any setting. That's a universal theme. That's sort of like a Phoenix from the Ashes that Batman really embodies more so than just about everybody else. And I think also a lot of, for me, part of the appeal of the characters, he's, yes, he debuted in comics, but he's more of a pulp hero. And you know my history with that. He's a pulp hero through and through. Well, and I was going to say, why don't you talk a little bit, because I know, and, and people that are probably listening to this know the, the origins of the character, but one of the reasons why I really wanted to have you on the show talking about Batman 75, fifth anniversary is because i don't know anybody <laughs> that can go as deep into the origins of the character as you and it i always tell people like you're the go-to guy for batman hmm. for me oh thanks but I, I think it all comes from your love of pulps yeah which developed after your love of batman in a way i mean it was kind of like batman was kind of a catalyst for you going back and learning more about that, the, the pulp characters that inspired batman that is exactly the case i can tell you that the adam west show was my gateway into the character. Love the show. Um, and then I learned to read off the comics. You know, Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. Spider-Man, Batman. And I started getting into the comics that were current at the time, early 70s, mid-70s. I don't really remember a whole lot about those. But I think what really kicked off my love affair with Batman is in the mid-70s, if you remember, DC was putting out those oversized, like, famous first editions. Yeah. And I've, I've got a few of those. I still have them. I remember because inside the front covers, it, for, for people that don't know what I'm talking about, DC Comics back in 74 and up through the early 80s was putting out these folio-sized comic, basically facsimile editions that were, I think they're like double the size of a regular, maybe triple the size of a regular. Yeah. Yeah, they were, they were the oversized. Yeah. And they didn't do just... Well, the, the, you could get them in pretty much any kind of... Uh, I mean, Marvel did a little bit of it, too. But, but DC started it with what they called the Famous First Editions, where they took and reproduced for, you know, 30-some-odd years later for people that would never get, have the chance to read the original material. They started with Action Comics number 1, Detective Comics 27, Superman number 1, which came out right around the time that the, the first the, the Superman the movie came out, uh, Batman number 1, Flash Comics number 1, Sensa- uh, Sensation Comics number 1, I guess it was, Wiz Comics number 1 for Captain Marvel. Shazam. Inside the uh, front cover, the cardboard cover, there was usually a little uh, blurb about what you're about to get yourself into. I remember the one for Detective Comics 27, which was still my favorite one out of all of them that I have. I love them all, but that one's my favorite. Uh, it talks about a little bit about the origins of the character, where he came from. And I remember something, I almost remember it word for word, but I won't, I'm not going to get into that now. But the, I think it was Julius Schwartz wrote, wrote that editorial, little editorial. But he talks about the character combined the cleverness of Tr- Detective Sherlock Holmes, the athletic ability of Douglas Fairbanks Zorro, and the mysterious qualities of the shadow. I never heard of that. Or even Douglas Fairbanks at that point. You know, Sherlock Holmes was in that. And then a few years later, I don't know how I came across this. My mom gave it to me. It was, a, it was an old-time radio cassette. And it was a broadcast of Orson Welles as the shadow. The artwork on the cassette was sort of like an updated drawing of the character. But no, I saw I got I got that and and that little blurb in that oversized edition of that Detective Comics twenty seven, Batman's first appearance, opened up a, a whole new world for me. 
and not just for the pulps, but the golden age of comics. Stay tuned to find out who Jim and Steve think made the biggest contributions to the legend of Batman coming up next on 30 Minutes of Geek. Gang, this week's show is sponsored by the Now Write Writing Guide series from Tarcher Penguin. Now Write Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror is the latest book in the popular Now Write series, and it offers a full toolbox of advice and exercises for speculative fiction writers from some of the most well-known names in the genre. Are you hoping to craft an engaging alternate reality or flesh out an enthralling fantasy quest, or even dream up a blood-curdling plot twist? Well, you can learn secrets from authors such as Harlan Ellison, Piers Anthony, Jack Ketchum, Ramsey Campbell, John Skip, Joe R. Lansdale, David Brin, Vonda McIntyre. I mean, the list goes on and on. They provide tips, tricks, and suggestions to help take your writing to the next level. Whether you're a beginner or a published professional, now write science fiction, fantasy, and horror is a must-have for every genre writer's bookshelf. You know, I always tell everybody when I do a workshop or I teach one of my screenwriting classes that when I started, there was like two books that gave instruction on how to do this sort of thing. And you kind of, it was like being a babe in the woods. Like you just kind of had to find your way. And this is a really good way to get some exercises and some hints and tips on how to jumpstart your writing. So make sure to check it out. It's now right. Science fiction, fantasy, and horror. It's available in most Barnes and Noble stores on Amazon.com. Check out the website for more information. It's nowright.net. back to the show as we continue exploring Batman's 75-year history in comics this week. And in this next segment, Steve and I are talking about the storytelling conventions of the time, and, and we started to talk about how there was a transition from the pulp storytelling conventions to comics and how it was becoming a different storytelling art form. Yeah, I, a lot of that, I, I think a lot of people in, in the comics industry that know their stuff would acknowledge something that Danny O'Neill has said before a lot of that can be attributed to batman's co-creator important to say bill finger the writer of the first story and a lot of the best golden age stuff is that he was the first writer in in that business that that thought visually maybe outside of will eisner he kind of had an instinctive ability to to know how to write for the comics medium whereas a lot of people didn't and and it was still new people are still learning it but he did think in a a three-act structure you got to remember that a lot of people that were in the comics business in those days were either pulp hacks or editors or writers that couldn't or had more difficulty adapting to the comics form because it was shorter. Or, uh, this is the same reason, but or a lot of them were uh, coming out of, the, of newspaper comics where you, you could tell a story over the course of several weeks daily. As a matter of fact, the Superman, the first issue of Superman was supposed to be for newspaper syndication. And they were told to cut up the pages so that they could, they could format it for comics. That's right. But Bill Finger, with Batman basically being his first comics gig, kind of got it right away. He set up the three-act structure, you know, meet the problem, fail, meet it again, to draw. You, know, you go back for the third time, Batman wins. They, they were more concerned about plot over characterization. You, you told the story, because this was just, this, this was for kids, essentially. You know, little kids. You know, adults could get into it too, but 
it probably would have been a guilty pleasure for them. But uh, but this was the kids' medium, and the creators weren't really all that concerned about being creating great art. They were. This was just a paycheck for them. Uh, some people cared, you know. I'm sure. I'm sure well, to some extent. And they they were writing to the audience, it, I mean, it, right? You know, it's the same argument that I have with people that say, well, when George Lucas made the prequels, they weren't as good as the original Star Wars trilogy. Mm-hmm. And I always say we're looking at it through an adult prism now. Mm-hmm versus the kid prism that we looked at the original trilogy. And, I mean, I'm not arguing apples and oranges here, but George Lucas made the prequel, especially Phantom Menace, he made it for a new generation of kids. Yeah, that's pretty obvious. (laughs) But much as he made the original Star Wars for our generation of kids, and it's sort of the same thing, you know, when people say, well... The storytelling wasn't as sophisticated back then. Yeah. It wasn't meant to be. It wasn't meant to be because the audiences were, by and large, not sophisticated as far as their, their taste in literature and all that. But And again, it wasn't just the audience. It was the people producing it. This is They were breaking new ground. So 75, 80 years later, uh, we get the benefit of people that have grew, grown up with this, have been able to tinker with the format to get it to where it is today as far as, like, its technical capabilities. Because we're still, when Batman debuts, we're still kind of in the infancy of comic books as we know them. Oh, yeah. I mean, up up until up until De- uh, Detective Comics in 1937, that was the first comic to have all new original material in it. Uh, everything else before that had been reprints of newspaper stuff because they could put it out cheap and it was ready-made product. Detective Comics comes along with all new original material. That proves to be successful. They start up Action Comics a year later with Superman, and that's that's technically the golden age. That's the beginning of the golden age of comic. With Superman, I know we're talking about Batman here, but Superman is without Superman, we won't have we wouldn't have comics today, and we wouldn't have Batman and Spider Man, the X Men, Fantastic Four, all that stuff. So we got really got to hand handed to Siegel and Schuster with Superman. But there's a reason why. The, in Extraordinary, I dedicate it to Siegel and Schuster. Yeah, I know. Because I look at it like if they yeah, had they, done they built they a did, sandbox, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that's exactly why I phrased it the way mm-hmm. I did, because we're all playing in their sandbox. Yeah. And exactly. I think that Bob Kane just happened to be in the right place at the right time with the right idea to follow in their footsteps and say, well, these guys are doing this thing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take some of the pulp trappings and put it in this format and see if it works. I'm glad you brought up Bill Finger, though, because I I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about that because over the years, and we have friends of ours that we've had this conversation with, we were kind of right there in the middle of the image explosion. Yeah. When the, the image guys left Marvel Comics and formed Image Comics, and I was very vocal at the time and still am very vocal that there were some of those guys that are very good artists mm-hmm. that thought they were writers. And as a writer, I felt like they were sliding other writers by saying, well, I don't need a writer. Right. All I have to do is have really good artwork. Mm-hmm. And the book's going to sell because my name's on it. And most of those guys are not working in comics anymore. No. And the ones that are are working with really good writers. Mm-hmm. And they've had to temper down their artwork to, to, to it exactly. as well. When I look back at the early days of Batman, it kind of reminds me of that image situation where there was somebody that was an artist mm-hmm. that thought that he was a writer yeah. and thought he could create this character 
but a lot of the stuff that we think of when we think of Batman... Comes from Bill Finger. Yeah, it came from Bill Finger. Mm -hmm. Kind of touch on some of that stuff, because I know some of the basic stuff, but what are some of the major Batman trappings that everybody thinks of when they think of Batman that were Bill Finger and not Bob Kane? Okay, well, to start off with, Bob Kane, God bless him, his really, really his only contribution to the generation of Batman was the name and the idea of a, a guy in a bat suit. He had no concept of what the guy was, what kind of hero he was going to be, what the stories were going to be like. The legend is that when National Comics, which would later become DC, were getting the sales figures on Superman and Action Comics and realized what a hit it was, that Bob Kane was among their stable of artists writing a lot of funny animal features and stuff, humor strips, and that he was wanting to branch out into, into adventure somehow, and even though his artwork wasn't really suited for it. But. And the editor at the time, a guy named uh, Vince Sullivan, asked Bob Kane if he could come up with another character like Superman. So he did, and he went off and made sketches. He's got a biography, Batman and Me, if anybody's ever read it. He talks in, in great deal about it, and you kind of got to take some of it with a grain of salt because he, he, lets, he left Bill Finger out of a lot of it. His original sketches from everything I've ever read about it were a guy in a red union suit with the black trunks and boots you know, and the belt, uh, stiff wings instead of a cape, and no gloves or gauntlets. Hey, they did the stiff wings later on in one of the movies, so... Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And no cowl. It was just like a Lone Ranger mask. Now, this is where Bill Finger comes in. Bill Finger, I guess, had been ghostwriting some of the, the humor strips that, that Bob was getting credit doing for you know the artwork for in various national comics titles. When he showed Bill Finger his sketches for this character he called the Batman, quote-unquote, with a hash, hash mark in between the Bat and Man, which is still my preferred mode of uh, rendering his name, Bill Finger suggested, okay, the red's got to go. I don't, I don't know if it's, it was intended to be gray or just black. It, it, is, it was just a, a, a matter of the four-color printing process at the time, kind of like with the Phantom. It was supposed to be a gray suit, not purple. Or if it was supposed to be gray, uh, give give him gloves, although it wasn't the blue gauntlets that we that we are familiar with now, and give him a cowl and make it a cape and not wings. So he went back and did all that, showed it to Vince Sullivan, says, great, we're going to put it in Detective Comics. So Bill Finger has to start writing scripts. And it was Bill Finger's idea to, to give him the alter ego of Bruce Wayne, millionaire playboy, and that he was going to be a detective. No superpowers, nothing like that. I mean, and really, Superman was really the only character at that point that had that. So from Bill Finger's perspective, his immediate frame of reference was the pulp heroes, the Shadow, the Spider, Doc Savage, and others, the Phantom Detective, things like that. And as a matter of fact... And this has been documented elsewhere, but the very first Batman story from that Detective Comics 27, Case of the Chemical Syndicate, is, is almost a word-for-word ripoff of a Shadow novel from three years earlier. The plot's exactly the same. And Finger even admitted it. But in those days, it wasn't that big a deal. And who was really paying attention to... Even the pulps that were well-established were still sort of looked down on by literati for being you know garbage, even though... Most of our storytelling conventions that exist today come from the pulps, and especially they weren't going to pay attention to comics who give who gave a crap. And yeah, it was it was pared down quite a bit because that was, the original was a novel, and this was a six-page comic book story that was heavily edited for content, but got the basics of the story you know intact. So when when people hear that Batman is sort of like the son of characters like the Shadow and, and to an extent Doc Savage, they really don't know how close that is to the truth. Or 
what element took Batman from just another pulp vigilante to the mythic hero who has lasted 75 years? Find out when 30 minutes of Geek returns momentarily. show is sponsored in part by MyGeekyShop.com. They just opened up, and it's a source for some really cool collectibles, fan art, and geek merchandise. You know, Saturday morning cartoons may be gone from our TVs, but MyGeekyShop.com lets us relive cherished memories with canvas art featuring the Looney Tunes stars, Fred Flintstone. They even have one that has Dick Dastardly and Muttley from the Wacky Races. It's really cool stuff. My favorite section on MyGeekyShop.com has some awesome-looking fan art showcasing legendary characters like Batman and Robin, Superman, the Hulk, and many more. So if you're looking for something unique to give as a gift or just to hang in your own personal collection, check out the newest spot on the for Nerd Nirvana. It's MyGeekyShop.com. back as 30 Minutes of Geek continues to celebrate 75 years of the Dark Knight Detective in comics with artist and Batman expert Steve Newton. And in this last segment of this week's show, we get into the crux of what makes Batman such an iconic character and what Steve and I both agree is the strongest part of the Batman legend. Batman has the best origin story. Bar none. Superman and Spider-Man come close. But uh, but uh, if every comic book character, those three have the most familiar origin stories because they're mythic. Yeah, they they they, they have that that quality. Anything, everybody else, you know, they could have a decent origin story, but it doesn't grab the public imagination like those three, especially Batman. Who couldn't understand that? We've- well, when I teach my screenwriting class, you know, we talk about inciting incidents all the time, and like Batman has the inciting incident of all inciting incidents where his story kind of opens with his parents being murdered. Right, which which is interesting that uh, it took him about six months in the comics to get to that point. He's a kid when that happens. Mm-hmm. So it's not like that happens and he immediately becomes Batman. Oh, no. And I love that there's this however long 10-year period of time, 15-year period of time, yeah. where he's growing up and just... In the back of his head, there's this idea, mm-hmm. and it, it keeps growing. And it may not have started immediately the day after his parents died. Oh, and you and I have kind of thrown around our own ideas about what we think happened and, and how that developed in young Bruce Wayne. Sure, but it's so rich and so full of storytelling possibilities. From a comic standpoint, that's such a great way to start a story. Yeah, it is. And, and then flash forward to this guy who becomes Batman. Mm-hmm. And you're constantly asking yourself, well, what did he go through? And how did he get to that point where right. he just decided, I'm going to be Batman because of this one thing that happened to him? Yeah, which is, you know, it, which is very it, powerful. So It wasn't a series of unfortunate events. It was that one thing. Mm-hmm. It's a defining moment in his life. Oh, yeah. And it happens to him when he's a kid. Right. And, uh, yeah, a very young kid. Uh, I, I think... 
what's what's really great about Batman's origin story because it, it is it is open to a lot of interpretation and a lot of extrapolation. The great thing about the original version of that, that that Bob Kane and Bill Finger did back in November 1939, is it was just a two, like a, a page and a half add-on to the beginning of that issue's story, which had nothing to do with his origin. But the, the time had come for, for them to say, well, to answer, why is he Batman? Why is Bruce Wayne Batman? So they did. They came up with a great explanation. They, it was very glossed over because, again, going back to the audience wasn't as sophisticated as they are now. All they had to do was get across the idea that this kid lost his parents it was very traumatic for him and that he grew up to seek vengeance for that's that's all they needed that's all the audience yeah. needed to know yeah um, it, it's so simple it's simple it's it's primal yeah i mean it, it's there's a lot of holes in that original version of the story but the nice thing is with the passage of time and people getting into writing the character or, or enjoying it however they're going to enjoy it is they can start thinking about which we've done before talking about okay well there's something missing here i mean what what else is going what else has happened between that point and the time? Right. And I think that was kind of the enjoyment for us, not just as fans, but as creators, too, is you get to play that what up and to take a period like that that hasn't really been touched a lot and say, well, if we had a chance to do Batman, how would we do it? Mm-hmm. And this may be one of those fertile grounds where we can play around in the sandbox of Batman mm-hmm. and what kind of twist would we put on it or or how do we think about it? Mm -hmm. And it's always fun to do that. So the origin story for me was always one of those things that I just kind of put up on the wall and said, that's one of the reasons why I love Batman. Ever wonder what Jim is thinking in between episodes of 30 Minutes of Geek? Check out 500 Words or Less, his blog at midnight-entertainment.com. He rants, he raves, he talks comics, movies, TV, sports. He might even give you a recipe for his fantastic Christmas cookies. It's all in 500 Words or Less. Jim's blog at midnight-entertainment.com. music for this episode is batman evolution by the piano guys their new album wonders is out now you can find it at itunes amazon.com or directly from their website at thepianoguys.com next week on the show we'll continue our conversation with steve about batman's 75 year legacy in the comics and then next month we've got a two-part episode where steve and i discuss all of the various appearances of batman on television And in December, we'll look at Batman and the movies from the serials in the 40s all the way up until today as we continue celebrating 75 years of Batman. And hopefully these shows will kind of change the perception of some of our fans on the internet. I know Chris Hayes and I have been having conversations on Facebook where Chris feels like I've been hating on DC and some of the moves that they're making with their film franchises. It's really... The frustration is because of the love I have for these characters, and as much as I love Marvel and consider myself a Marvel guy, Steve Newton and I have talked over the years about how DC has the more iconic characters. I mean, these characters are legendary-type characters, and that's one of the reasons why I really feel like they work in film and would really love to see them have a DC universe in film, and I'm really excited about the Batman-Superman movie as much as I will not call 
call it Batman v Superman. It should have been World's Finest. It really should have. But, you know, beyond that, the idea that Batman and Superman are going to be on film together blows my mind, and I can't wait, and I really hope they don't mess it up. And I think that's where some of the premature nerd rage comes from, is that all of us really want this to be a good movie, and we really want it to kick off the DC version of what Marvel's doing with their movies, and, and I love to see a Justice League movie done right, and I just hope that that's what they're building to, and I, and I hope they don't mess it up too much. I've loved all of the casting so far. We'll get into this a little bit more when Steve and I talk about the Batman movies, but I really think that's where some of the perception comes that I've been hating on DC. It's it's not DC hate. It's a fear that they're going to screw it up, and because they've had some missteps over the years, I don't know that they've got a lot of margin for error on this, and I, I really hope that the Batman-Superman movie does kick off kind of a golden age for DC's movies. That's going to wrap things up for this week. Thank you once again for tuning in. I want to thank Rachel, the Android announcer, and everybody here that makes 30 Minutes of Geek what it is every week for you guys. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm Jim Yelton. Stay tuned next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Tune in next time as we continue our celebration of Batman's 75th anniversary. Jim will continue his conversation with Steve Newton about the Dark Knight's history in comics. They look at his famous ropes gallery, the iconic stories, and the legendary creators who have worked on Batman's comic adventures over the past 75 years. That's all on the next episode of 30 Minutes of Geek. Find out more about Midnight's exciting offerings including a full library of 30 Minutes of Geek episodes, bonus content, blogs, and much more at midnight-entertainment.com. Thirty Minutes of Geek is a production of Midnight Entertainment LSC Copyright 2014, all rights reserved. Well, kids, that's all you get. That's it. We a book. <laughs>